Well, some of you know that I love history, and so I regularly pick up books about historical events or the biography of some particularly great figure. So far this year, I've read a book about English history. We took a trip to England in March, and so I wanted to bone up on all of my British history. And since then, uh, as well, I've read a biography of Leonardo da Vinci, and I'm currently reading a new biography of Frederick Douglass. History entertains, but it also inspires. And one of the very best historians of all times was a Jew who later converted to Christianity. His name's Luke. And he grew up not in Israel, as you might expect, but in Antioch in what is now modern-day Turkey. He was an educated man, a physician by training. His mother tongue was probably Greek, even though he uh, most likely spoke Hebrew as well. And for our purposes, what's interesting about Luke is that he had a front row seat to the early days of the Christian church. Early on, he began collecting stories about Jesus that he heard from eyewitnesses and other accounts that had been written down, began to compile them into a biography that we now have in our New Testament. It's called Luke, named after him, uh, the third book of the New Testament. But Luke also had a second book in him. It's a history of the early Christian church, commonly called the Acts of the Apostles, or most often shortened simply to Acts. And from Luke's perspective, The church grew in fulfillment of promises that God had made years before. He makes these connections a number of different times. And he tells this inspiring story of how from just a handful of Jesus followers in a single church in the city of Jerusalem, this movement spread geographically, ethnically, and racially throughout the known world. As we'll see next week, Luke believed that the power behind the church was, first of all, its message. The message the early Christian church leaders told, that salvation is found in Jesus, who was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and then also the power of the Holy Spirit, the gift that Jesus left the church when he ascended into heaven. Together between the message and the Spirit, they saw changed lives and communities everywhere they went. It's an inspiring story, and it raises some important questions, none more important than this, and that is how can we here at City Church recapture some of the confidence, enthusiasm, vision, and power that these early Christians had? It's a question that we're going to explore in the weeks to come. Just as he did with his biography of Jesus, Luke dedicates Acts to a friend of his named Theophilus. At the beginning of Acts, he reminds him of everything that he'd already written him about in the book of Luke. And that is, he says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And then Luke transitions to the purpose of this second book. He says, Until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So that paragraph is a transition from biography number one to this history of the early Christian church. And there's a lot packed in the lines I just read. But the gist is that after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 additional days with his followers. They hung out, they shared meals, they talked. Jesus even showed them his scars from his crucifixion, which might sound gross, except there's a point here, and that is because along the way, those who had followed Jesus during his lifetime became convinced that he was literally, physically, and supernaturally alive again. In addition to offering them proof of the resurrection, it says that he taught them about the kingdom of God. In the next few verses, he'll mention that again, so we'll talk about it a little bit more detail in a moment. But he, uh, they ask him an important question um, along the way. First, though, he tells them something important in verses 4 and 5. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. He said, don't leave Jerusalem, at least for right now, 
but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me uh, talk about or speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're confused what Jesus is getting at here, you're not alone. But if you can, if you can hold the question about this gift, this promised Holy Spirit, until next week, we're going to see in kind of full fulfillment what that is all about. The Holy Spirit is an important character in the second book uh, uh, that Luke wrote. And we're going to get a more complete view next week. So we'll just save some of those questions for now. But he does refer again to this idea of the kingdom of God, which raises a question in the minds of at least one who was there that day, who said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to restore the kingdom uh, uh, of Israel? Now, let me just uh, for a moment ask you parents whether you've ever had an experience where you're driving on a car trip with your children, and maybe you're going to St. Paul, maybe you're going to St. Louis, Maybe you're going to St. Petersburg. Wherever you're going along the way, suddenly from the back seat, there's a voice that says, are we there yet? Sometimes it's just the end of the block. But regardless, the point is, is that your child is impatient, wants to know if what you're, where you're going, you're there yet. That's in some ways exactly what's going on here. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom of God was a really hard concept for these early Christian followers, early Christians to get their heads around. Because when they first started following Jesus when he was alive, they thought they were signing up for a mega movement, the Make Israel Great Again movement. They, the great again part, though, didn't seem to be happening. So when they asked Jesus, when are you going to win an election and take over the throne? That's what they were thinking was going to happen. It's what they had expected. One of the most important tasks that Jesus had in that 40-day period between the time he rose from the dead to the time he ascended into heaven was to clarify the message that he had come to share, the message about the kingdom of God. Because prior to his death and resurrection, the idea of the kingdom of God baffled them. The Jews of Jesus' day took great pride in being the chosen people of God. They believed that they had special privileges as Israelis, that their nation was destined for worldwide domination. Now, the problem with that expectation is it was nowhere being fulfilled. Rather than be a fully independent, powerful nation, they were frustrated because for centuries, they'd been under the authority of other nations, like the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and when Jesus was there, the Romans. So when they heard the phrase kingdom of God, they had this expectation of a king, the one they called the Messiah, the anointed one, who drive out the Romans and remake them into a global superpower. In other words, when Jesus said kingdom, they thought he was referring literally to an earthly kingdom with a capital city, with an army, with laws and all of that, something like Switzerland or Costa Rica or the United States of America. But Jesus told them that the kingdom of God was anywhere that God's will was done here on earth as it would one day be perfectly done in heaven. A kingdom founded on love, not on power. It would transform everything. Eventually, heaven and earth would come together under the authority of King Jesus. So just in case they started to get caught up in predicting dates and times, Jesus tells them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. But first, I want to look at the scope of the kingdom of God that Jesus had in mind. Because he then says in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what he's telling them is the scope here is global. He's telling them that the people of God will one day be citizens, not of a country here on earth, but citizens of heaven. 
that they should think of themselves not as Israelis, but to think of themselves as something well beyond that. We think of ourselves as Americans, but Jesus is encouraging us to think more broadly. He wanted them to understand that their primary citizenship was not in a worldly family, but in a worldwide family of the kingdom of God. Now, for us today, that includes us as Americans, as well as Brits and Germans and Russians and Lebanese and Syrians and Mexicans and even a few Canadians. That's what Jesus meant when he mentioned Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a second, but first, remember that for Jesus' followers, this was hard. They had to give up some preconceived ideas. The rest of the book of Acts is encouraging because it's clear that they got it. They finally understood that God's kingdom was not simply a political kingdom, but a spiritual one that we enter by repentance and faith. And they devoted themselves to taking this message of repentance and forgiveness to the world. And how do we know that? Because they did what Jesus asked them to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Now the word witness here is a witness. It's somebody who tells others what they know to be true. So you can think of, in our context, if you go to trial, you may be called or someone else may be called to witness on your behalf or on the, you may witness on the behalf of someone else. So it's someone who tells from their perspective what they know to be true. In those 40 days, those early followers of Jesus became convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why him showing their, his scar, them his scars was so important. And from that moment on, they told others what they knew and what they had experienced. They became witnesses. Now, in our day, we're often hesitant to be witnesses, to tell others about our faith in Jesus. Because there's a notion alive in our culture that we are not to talk to other people about religion. Religion, many say, is a private and personal thing, not something we're to push on others. Let me just say that that's a half-truth. Because, yes, we are not to push our faith on others. And, yes, faith is personal. No one can make a decision for you, and you can't make a decision for somebody else about what to put your faith and trust in. But the false part of the equation is that faith is not something we should talk about. If it's central and core to what we are, it should be something we talk about. Yes, we do it respectfully, but we must talk about it. And the earliest Christians experienced something that changed them forever because when Jesus was arrested by the authorities, his followers scattered and hid. It's very clear that they were afraid. They were cowards. Peter, who was the boldest of Jesus' friends, had a few days before Jesus was arrested, said, I will die for you. And then Jesus is arrested, and what does he do? He denies Jesus to a slave girl, someone who had almost no status in Jewish society. But that was before Jesus rose from the dead. Once the disciples saw Jesus on and after that first Easter Sunday, they were changed people. They began to speak out with boldness, defying authorities who told them to be quiet under the threat of imprisonment or worse. Now, their boldness wasn't because they chose to guilt anyone or turned into religious versions of uh, used car salesmen. I would actually call them more travel guides, people who walked alongside others helping them understand Jesus. But their boldness came because of the deep conviction that what they had was good news. In fact, it was great news for everyone. At City Church, we're convinced that the good news of Jesus is the best news that anyone could want to hear. We believe and really believe that anyone who was far off from God would be better off if Jesus Christ were at the center of their lives. And that's why we're committed to following the example of Jesus and his first followers in inviting anyone and everyone to receive the invitation that Jesus offers to each one of us. 
It's in receiving that invitation that we find peace, meaning, and purpose, and guidance, strength, and hope for eternity that comes through a relationship with Jesus. And we believe that in having a relationship with Jesus, God fulfills our deepest longings and hopes. So who wouldn't want abiding peace, a heart filled with love, the kind of faith that sees everything, even our failures and our losses, in light of God's amazing grace? The kind of hope that endures even in difficult circumstances. To be freed from sin and given the power to do what is right. To be liberated from loneliness and anxiety and fear. To flourish and to become the people God created us to be. In short, the abundant life that Jesus came and said he came to bring. To follow Jesus is to discover that he alone can satisfy our deepest longings. He can transform our most persistent failings and heal our deepest pain. So the question is, what else do we want? That's why we're committed at City Church to extend that invitation to one and all. That's what Jesus means when he said they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's why this verse, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, is the most important verse in the book. From this point on, Jesus' disciples began to take that good news, ultimately beginning in Jerusalem and ultimately to the ends of the world that they knew, starting from right there. So what does this mean for us? Well, let me give you a metaphor that might help you understand what Jesus is talking about. And to do that, I'm going to rip something off from Stephen Covey in his book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Some of you know that in that book, he shares this concept of circle of influence and circle of concern. And the idea is that all of us have a certain amount of influence with others, but we also have concerns that are broader than our influence. And so Covey shares that the idea and one of the goals of our professional life is to increase our influence into other areas of our circle of concern. That's Covey's idea. Now, here's how I'll translate that into the idea that, uh, that Luke is talking about in Acts, or Jesus is talking about. And that is that Jesus told his followers to start with those who were close to them, those who were living in Jerusalem, and then they were to go to the country folk, those in Judea. And then, and this is where it gets more interesting and challenging, he tells them to go to Samaria. Now, let me just tell you that the Jews had a problem with the Samaritans. Frankly, they considered these what they called biracial half-breeds to be people that they should avoid. Many good Jews would take a long trip around Samaria if they were going to the northern part of the country just to avoid going through and walking through Samaria. Well, to make matters even more complicated, Jesus says to the ends of the earth. And what he's talking about there is really the, the rest of the known world. And he's talking about places where people lived that Jews called Gentiles, those who did not share their beliefs. And they considered them impure as well. All of that would have been very challenging to a first century Jew. So the idea of geographic and ethnic expansion was radical, and it was difficult for some to accept. In fact, what we'll see as the book of Acts progresses, we won't see all of that this year, but when we continue next year, many of the Jews who were racist had difficulty understanding and getting their heads around that. And they eventually had to, uh, to move on from there. So when Jesus said they were to go to Samaria, they were offended. When he said to go to the end of the earth, to Gentiles, they were shocked. Um, they'd never considered it. Um, but Jesus told them that that was his expectation. Now, let me just say, you know, for us, this might mean that we start with Minneapolis, and then we go to St. Paul, and then, God forbid, we'd go to Wisconsin to all those Packer fans, and then to the ends of the earth. But the idea is to increasingly go out from where we are. So we start by taking initiative with those that we're close to, like family. Um, 
And then we move on to those who maybe aren't quite as close, but friends. And then continue to those we know less well, but have regular contact with, which might mean coworkers and neighbors and parents um, of others on our kids' traveling soccer teams. And finally, on to everyone. And Jesus tells them and us to be witnesses, to tell others what we know about Jesus, to take the message to those near and far. I never met my mother's father, Will Thomas. Um, my grandfather died long before I was born. He died in 1932 when my mother was three. He was born in a small town in Wales in 1891, which would make him 138 years old if he had lived till today. Uh, my grandfather, Will's mother, was a Christian, but he did not share her, her beliefs. He had little interest in faith. When he was 21, he moved to the north of England for a job, in part to get away from his mother, but things didn't go well. He soon found himself unemployed. And one of his brothers, who had become a Christian a few years before, sent him a Bible. Since he didn't have much to do, Will began to read that Bible. And his brother had underlined some verses throughout, maybe to call his attention to a few things. And one of those verses he'd underlined was Matthew 6:33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And for some reason, that verse was a catalyst to help him to put things together and to make sense of what he'd been reading. And then and there, he decided to believe. A few weeks later, he wrote to his mother and told him that he had become a Christian. She was overjoyed. And then he returned home because he didn't have any place else to go to live with her and to go to work in the coal mines not far from their home in Wales. My mother told me that she's been told a story that when he returned home, he began to attend church regularly. He didn't own a car, few did at the time, so he rode his bike everywhere, and the church that he attended was eight miles away, so about a 20, 25-minute bike ride. Some of his mother's neighbors, though, believed it was a sin to ride a bike on Sunday. I have no idea why, but they did. And so my grandfather, in order not to offend them, got up an hour and a half for two hours early before he needed to be at church and walk the distance to the church there and then walk the hour and a half, two hours back home um, in the afternoon just so he wouldn't offend these neighbors. During this time, he began to read his Bible every day. He prayed, his faith in Jesus grew, and not long after, he began to tell others about his faith in Christ. My grandfather, I understand, had a great singing voice, and he was asked to join a group of Welsh singers and traveling preachers. These men, 16 in all, traveled throughout Wales and England and Scotland, riding their bikes, singing and preaching in the open air. And to accompany the men while they sang, my grandfather bought a concertina, which is a small accordion. Uh, I have a cousin who has the one that he owned. But he didn't know how to play it, and at first he couldn't really get the hang of it. So one day he drew a circle in the dirt, put a chair in the middle, and said, God, I'm going to stay here until I learn how to play it. And I don't know how many days it took him, but he learned, became so proficient that from that point on he accompanied the men whenever they sang. 1926, he came to the United States with his brother to go on a preaching tour. The next year, after they'd returned to Wales, they came back to the States, and this time he met my grandmother, and they were married on the front porch of her parents' home in Kansas. And then they moved to Wichita to start a church. A couple of years later, when my mom was two, my grandfather was diagnosed with liver cancer and probably caused at least in part by his time in the coal mines, and he died a few months later. But to the end of his life, he was devoted to telling others about Jesus. Now, I never met my grandfather, but many years after he died, I too came to know Jesus. Like my grandfather, Will, I became convinced, as those early followers of Jesus did, that Jesus rose from the dead, that he could give me a relationship with God, that it was a gift that he offered to each of us. 
In Luke's first book, that biography of Jesus that he wrote, about the, he told about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's a story that reminds us of the invitation that Jesus extends to each one of us, the invitation to know God personally. The hope that we have in Jesus is what Luke lives us with at the end of this section that we've been looking at today. And he tells us that Jesus was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. Now this is an out-of-the-ordinary scene. You can almost imagine the special effects that Hollywood would use to, to depict this. But it must have been dramatic. One moment they're standing there face-to-face talking to Jesus, and the next moment he's, moment he's sort of levitating up into a cloud, and he disappears. But what's happening here is that Jesus had fulfilled and done everything that he came to do. He lived an exemplary life. He taught them how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. He died for their sins and for ours. And he rose from the dead, defeating once and for all sin and death. And now it was time to return to heaven and to leave them with the task that he had begun. It was time for them to pick up where he left off and begin the next chapter of the story. But Jesus wasn't abandoning them. As we'll talk about next week, he gave them a helper, the Holy Spirit, and promised them that one day he'd return. Now, Jesus was clear they shouldn't waste a moment's time trying to predict when that was going to take place. But he reassured them that he did have a plan for the future. And in the meantime... They and we can do what Jesus asks of us, to tell those, those that we know, about him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Luke wrote these things down, because otherwise we wouldn't have this history of, this, of these early Christians. We thank you, Father, for their faith in Jesus and the way that they lived boldly, the way that they witnessed, the way that they told others about um, what Jesus had done for them. Father, I pray that first of all, we would become convinced as they were that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, that that would give us confidence that through him, through a relationship with him, we can have a relationship with you. And Father, I pray also that you would empower us to sensitively and appropriately share what we have learned and what we know to be true, that you've risen from the dead and that you give us life in Jesus' name. We pray this, amen.